I can say with confidence that today's guests are some of the most fun and joyous I've had the privilege to cross paths with. Described by the Boston Globe as spellbinding acoustic musicians with a rare master of American roots styles, and by Billboard magazine as as close to flawless folk and bluegrass as it gets, they truly need no introduction. Two-time Grammy Award winners Kathy Fink and Marcy Markser are an eclectic folk festival on their own terms. They have entertained the Queen of Thailand, been keynote singers for the AFL-CIO, performed at hundreds of folk festivals, appeared on the Today Show, and on national public radio. Their superb harmonies are backed by instrumental virtuosity on the guitar, five-string banjo, ukulele, mandolin, cello banjo, and many other instruments. Their eclectic repertoire includes classic country to western swing, Django-style jazz to old-time string band and bluegrass, contemporary folk, and original gems. While their versatility defies a brief description, perhaps well-rounded Americana does it best. The duo has released 52 recordings, including Get Up and Do Right, which features duets of songs by other writers such as Alice Gerard, Tom Paxton, Olabelle Reed, and David Francie, along with a few originals. Other recent recordings include the uke-centric collection Wahoo and Shout and Shine with Appalachian tradition bearer and songwriter Sam Gleaves. The latest, all-new, is a double CD collaboration with friend Tom Paxton of 28 original songs written by Kathy and Tom, performed live in studio. Kathy and Marcy have achieved the status of master musicians, but are also happily known as social music conductors. Ready to start a jam session, mentor an up-and-coming artist, or create an entire music camp to help others learn to play and sing. At past music camps, they have taught Kaki King and Rhiannon Giddens banjo, and through their long relationship with the Music Center at Strathmore's Artist-in-Residence program, they have collaborated with and helped the next generation navigate the professional music world. They've earned two Grammy Awards in 2004 and 2005 for Celebration, a tribute to Ella Jenkins, and for Bon Appetit. In 2003, they were Grammy-nominated for their CD Postcards in the Best Traditional Folk Album category. They received another Grammy nomination in that category for Banjo Talkin'. In 2004, the Martin Guitar Company honored the duo with their own signature Martin guitars, the MCH Kathy Fink model, and the MC3H Marcy Markser model. Influenced by Mike Seeger, Marcy rediscovered the four-string cello banjo, inspiring the Gold Tone Company to make the Marcy Markser model cello banjo, now played by Tim O'Brien, Ricky Skaggs, and many others. She also designed her signature Kala ukulele, now played by hundreds of uke lovers. Kathy is a three-time winner of the West Virginia State Banjo Contest, the first woman to take first place in 1980, and in 2018, she became the first woman to win the Clifftop Appalachian Music Festival Banjo Competition. Kathy and Marcy have performed at hundreds of bluegrass and folk festivals, taught at music camps, appeared on the CBS Early Show, National Public Radio's Morning Edition, and All Things Considered. They have advocated in Washington for unions, health care for children, and the rights and livelihoods of artists. In their 40 years performing together, the Washington Area Music Association has recognized Kathy and Marcy with over 60 Whammy Awards for folk, bluegrass, and children's music. They have performed with Pete Seeger, Theodore Beichel, Tom Paxton, Patsy Montana, Riders in the Sky, and a wide range of musical luminaries. As curators, performers, and hosts, Kathy and Marcy have emceed festivals, curated concert series, and collaborated with a wide variety of musicians. They have toured worldwide from Japan to New Zealand, Vancouver to New York, and everywhere in between. Shows include the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, the Smithsonian Institute, and the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. 
American Voices Abroad shows Kathy and Marcy with fiddler Barbara Lamb to perform in China, Malaysia, Papua New Guinea, and Vanuatu in 2013 for the U.S. Department of State. They are not only wildly impressive, but full of joy, hope, and love, both for one another and for artistry as a whole. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, Kathy and Marcy, I'm so excited to get to talk to you guys. Um, I'm very thankful for Justin for putting us in touch and, and sharing your work with me. I think there's a lot of similarity here. And I know you'll have to hop off at six. So if it's cool with you, we'll just jump right into it. I think I would love to start. I know a little bit about kind of your experience in North Carolina, but both of us are also in North Carolina. This is home for us. And I think I'd love to start with hearing in your own words what North Carolina means to you and how you would describe home or the feeling of home. Well, you know, we share our time. uh, This is Kathy speaking. We share our time between Lansing, North Carolina and Silver Spring, Maryland. And our connection to Lansing, North Carolina is through the music of Ola Bell Reed. Ola Bell was a dear friend of ours. She was a mentor. We performed with her. We visited her frequently in her home. Uh, We took Patsy Montana to go visit her in her home, Patsy being the first woman in country music to sell a million records. We were dear friends with her husband, Bud. And um, so I don't know, maybe about 16 years ago, 15 years ago, I got a call from somebody in Lansing, North Carolina, who said, we're going to start an Ola Bell Reed homecoming festival. And everybody tells us not to do it without talking to y'all. So I um, got on board helping them kind of organize that for a couple of years. And during the process, Marcy and I became very good friends with some people down in Lansing. And then uh, we lost our minds and bought 48 acres and built a house and uh, have have sort of two home bases. We do a lot of work with the Ash County Arts Council, which is in that area in West Jefferson. And in fact, uh, when the Ola Bell Reed Festival kind of fizzled out, the Ash County Arts Council approached me about what can we do to keep Ola Bell's legacy going? And we started a songwriting retreat that's been going on for, I think this is our sixth year, but it might be our fifth year because I can't remember. And we've got Chris Matthews, a North Carolina native, coming along with Tom Paxton, who's a longtime dear friend and co-writer of ours, um, and Marcy and myself. So that's kind of our our big connection. We've made many trips and done many tours through North Carolina through the years, but it's a lot deeper now. I feel my blood pressure lower when I get to North Carolina. I really do. Uh, We get out into the mountains and into just the beautiful grassy areas. And uh, I just relax. That's the part of it that feels like home to me. I would describe it the exact same way. And um, I grew up in North and South Carolina and then left for college. And I always remember the feeling of coming back to the mountains, which is where my family is from. And it's like an exhale of you get there and you just feel like you can breathe again. Totally. I love the way you describe that. Well, and you know, Ola Bell's most famous song is High on a Mountain. And we built our house on top of a mountain and it's got uh, 15 eight foot sides. So it's kind of circular and we have a 360 view and a porch all around. And um, it's that big exhale and, and sunset is sacred time. 
It's the best time of the day in the mountains, right? I'm so glad to hear you bring up Olabel Reed. I grew up on her music and I am a huge fan of Olabel Reed. I didn't even know y'all knew her. Could you tell us, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know anything about Olabel Reed, a little bit about her music and that musical tradition and how you got involved with it? Sure. Olabel uh, grew up in Grassy Creek, which is essentially at this point, you know, Lansing, North Carolina. But um, I don't know, maybe in the 40s or 50s, her you know, her family gravitated up north like lots of Southerners to, for the purpose of finding work. And um, she grew up playing music. She grew up playing old time music, square dance music, guitar and banjo, learned the old ballads, the whole thing. But someplace along the line, Olabel, who was quite an independent thinker, just realized, oh, I got my own things to say and started writing her own songs. And it was at a you know, it was sort of before, long before the moniker of singer-songwriter uh, came along. And um, in old time and bluegrass style, she started writing her own songs. And they're quite poignant. They're quite smart. They're quite passionate. She's a She was a humanist. She was um, really a, um, just a beautiful person who loved helping people. She took in so many kids and she, she took in so many people and nobody was going to go hungry in her house and nobody was going to need something if she could provide it for them. And she and her brother, Alex and her husband, Bud had two different country music parks, as they call it, Sunset Park. And there was another one where for many years on the weekends, every country music artist and band came through and performed. And Olabel would do like the opening set and be the MC and be the hospitality. And um, it was incredibly formulative for a lot of people in both playing music and in enjoying music. So, um, you know, that's some of her background. She was a National Heritage Fellowship Award winner for her contributions to bluegrass and old time music. And that's a pretty big deal. She was also an early person inducted into the IBMA Hall of Fame. And I was lucky enough to be the person to present that award. And in our many trips to her house, there was always soup on the stove. There was always, um, you know, great hospitality, a nice visit and lots of music. And uh, her, I would say her two most famous songs are High on a Mountain which has been recorded by everyone, but was for the first time recorded by Del McCory in 1962. And then the next famous song is probably I've Endured. And to this day, you know, every youth bluegrass band that we come across is singing I've Endured, along with lots of other people, because Olabel's songs endure. They stand the test of time. And uh, we, from time to time, do entire concerts of just her songs. We're doing one for... Um, uh, what is it? Folk, the online classes that we're doing. Oh, uh, fiddlehell. Fiddlehell.org. Yeah. Middle of April. We've got a whole concert of Olabel songs. We're going to be doing one for, um, Baltimore County Community College, which is where her archives are. And every time we do that, you know, we, we dig into songs that go far beyond I've endured and, um, and High on a Mountain, there's so many of them. And we're also very lucky because there's a song that she actually 
gave us. We were leaving her house one day and she said, you know, I have a song that I've never recorded and I think you girls would do a good job of it. And it's called, I'm Hopelessly in Love with You. Beautiful song, clearly influenced by Hank Williams and clearly influenced by her knowledge of, you know, more contemporary country music at the time. And uh, we recorded it. Plus, we had the honor of singing it for Olabel and Bud on her on their 50th wedding anniversary at the VFW Hall in Rising Sun, Maryland. That's just incredible. What a story and what a connection. I feel like we have to backtrack here and hear a little bit more about who you two are. Um, who are Kathy and Marcy? <laughs> and how did you two get involved with all of this incredible arts work that you're doing? Who the heck are we? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's the big question, right? You know, who are you? It's a big yes, question. It is. You know, we started out in the scene, in the traditional music scene, folk scene, and old time scene in bluegrass when we were when we were really young, both of us. And we met when we were in our 20s, but we were on a similar path of learning from our elders and people we really admired. So, I mean, at that point, as a guitar player, for me, is if I walked up to somebody who was a hero of mine, say Norman Blake or something, and, and I, would, I was a, a young girl and I would say, yeah, is there any chance you can show me that? Uh, <laughs> and they always would. You know, people were very, very generous, took us under their wing. We did a lot of work with Pete Seeger. Um, we had a band with Mary Chapin Carpenter for a while. Um, uh, Eva Cassidy, if you know her stuff, and we worked with her. But it was really just cutting our teeth gig to gig, really, in my opinion. I mean, Kathy may have seen a, a full career out in front of her, but I didn't. I was just in the music and took gigs when they came in. And we met in 1980. We met in July of 1980 at a folk festival in Toronto. Marcy was there with an all-female string band called the Bosom Buddies String Band, which formed around a group of friends from, who were all worked at Elderly Instruments in Lansing, Michigan. And, um, and I was actually doing my very first year of solo work after five years of being in a sort of bluegrass old-time duet. And so the Bosom Buddies and I were in several workshops together, but but we ended up um, we ended up in a lot of workshops together at that festival. And that festival was its goal was to replace the Mariposa Festival, which had taken a break, which was one of the early, really wonderful folk festivals. And uh, you know, in those days, you'd go do your workshops and your concerts during the day, and you'd go back to the hotel at night and jam until three or four in the morning and get up early and get back there for those workshops the next day. We had the boundless energy of 20-somethings, and now we still have boundless energy. Um, but uh, one night, Marcy and I just happened to be in a room with Norman and Nancy Blake and Robin and Linda Williams and uh, Gamble Rogers. A few other people were sitting there playing old-time tunes around two o'clock in the morning, whosever room it was said, okay, get out of here. I'm going to bed. And Marcy and I thought, well, we're not quite done playing old time tunes. So we just went to another part of the hotel and it was a little dilapidated and under construction. And we looked at it and we said, there's no way they've got anybody staying in this area. It's too disgusting. So we just kept on playing tunes. And after about 20 minutes, you could hear this door creak open and we were about to meet one of our musical <laughs> heroines that we wanted to meet, but not in this particular way. It turned out to be Elizabeth Cotton, 
who opened the door. Apparently we had been waking her up and she had infamous words for us, which were, she said, I prayed to the Lord to make you children a little less happy. (laughs) And then she said, but it looks like he ain't going to do it. Where's the food? (laughs) So that was sort of the moment where we clicked and uh, that festival uh, went bankrupt before it was over. And the, the duo of Kathy Fink and Marcy Markser is thought of as the one good thing to come of the Toronto Folk Festival. Um, but uh, then for the next two years, we managed to play at a lot of the same festivals, do some gigs together. And that's about how long it took us to realize, oh, this is what we want to be doing for the rest of our lives. Marcy moved down to the D.C. area where I was, and that's um, that's more than 40 years ago. There you go. I mean, these are all just such incredible stories. And I live in Durham, so I love Elizabeth Cotton, very familiar with all of her music. Um, So amazing. We've talked to on this podcast quite a few kind of modern day musicians who are very inspired by the old time style, but I wouldn't say necessarily are making music in the old time style, have plenty of thoughts on it. I would love to hear from you two. What, how would you describe old time music and how have you seen it change from when you first began making music in that style to where it is today? Because I feel like it is a genre in so many ways that has come back around and is changing quite a bit and has changed quite a bit over the years. Well, you've asked a very hard question. I'm on a team of people who created the exhibit that just opened at the birthplace of country music uh, in Bristol slash Tennessee. And the exhibit is called I've Endured Women in Old Time Music. And the first question this team asked was, what is old time music? You know, what we found out is that you ask 20 people, you have 20 definitions. Um, I think for Marcy and I, it's an organic style of music that came from a pretty diverse set of people in the Southern United States. It's got its African-American roots. It's got its um, European roots. It's got its Native American roots in some places where these roots all kind of merged around and traded around and so it turned into square dance tunes and jigs and fiddle tunes and banjos ballads all of that and kept emerging it is not a stagnant type of music old-time music is not stagnant and um so for us, you know, we love playing a good square dance, played one a cup about a week ago. Um, but we also love the song repertoire in old time music. I think of all the old time duets that I learned back in the 70s. Um, I think of the instrumentation, which, you know, the banjo, the fiddle, the guitar, the mandolin, there's a bunch of ukulele in old time music. But these days you go to an old time jam and somebody might show up with a saxophone and if they can play the tunes, they are more than welcome. Um, you know, I think that old time music has slowly embraced the diversity that it came from. And I think that's one of the places where Ola Bell was ahead of the curve at all times. Um, but a simple definition can't quite give it to you. You know, I do feel like old time music evolves and, um, you know, therefore, I would say there are there's trad old time music and there's contemporary old time music. 
And when I say contemporary old time music, we're drawing on tradition, but we're the roots and branches. We're moving it forward. And it, you know, it's always moved. So there's no reason not to let that continue. You want to add anything to that? Well, I think when I first started listening to old time music as a kid in Michigan, it, it wasn't really necessarily talked about as old time music. It was talked about as fiddle tunes and fiddle and banjo music. And um, the feeling up there was a little more straight ahead, probably closer to Canadian influence, where it didn't have that big wide swing that some bands have now, which I love. Um, but the Southern music didn't really have that same kind of big fat swing either. Um, it had a different feel to it, but you used to be able to tell um, where players were from by the way they played the tunes they chose and the way they played the tunes. You could tell what region they were from. Um, and, now, and now there's so much influence from all the different regions. I, I love it. You know, it's like there's a, YouTube is, is a blessing when you're trying to learn old, old music, trying to go back and see what happened in, in the history since it's been recorded. Um, but the big old time swing that is uh, the big wide swing that is referred to now in, in a lot of old time music really comes from uh, New York, comes from the Henry Brothers and the Horseflies, bands like that. And there are people now who are carrying that on. But well, that's one. I, I'd call that one genre. Yeah, that's one, one that's slice. Like a separate of it. slice of old time music. Because we've also got that Durham group uh, that started with Alan Jabor and Tommy oh, Thompson. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there. I feel like there were multiple pockets of um, people who learned from the older masters and created groups and you know perpetuated. The music, but take the Red Clay Ramblers, by example. Oh, yeah. I mean, they took old-time music to new places. And mm -hmm. and that's a great thing. Jake Blunt's a great example of somebody who's doing that now. Mm -hmm. And so I think trying to define a moving target is a, is a tricky thing, but it embraces all those things. And I was going to add, if you take those old tunes and the different methods of playing and the new people add their personalities to them, they... They have to change. They have to live and breathe. And we can always go back and study. We can always uh, create. But it's an amazing thing to watch how this uh, old-time music scene has, has flourished and flowered. It's like we can't think of it as a monolith, which is something I rant about about the South all the time, that you know nobody would assume New York City and Boston to ever be the same. And yet, when you speak about the South, most of the time people will assume North Carolina is the same as Georgia, which is the same as Alabama. And they're all so different, right? I'm in the field of, they're, all, they're so different. And I'm a folklorist and I, I teach a folklore class um, here at UNC. And I asked my students on the first day of class, we were talking about music. And I was like, what does folk music mean to you? Like, who is someone who makes folk music? And unanimously, and these are students who are from the South, almost all of them were like, yeah, it's an old guy with a banjo on a porch. He's probably barefoot and he has a long beard, right? And we can't think of this as a monolith. And, you know, it's not to say that there aren't people who look like that making old time music, but it's a genre that is changing and shifting so much. And, and everyone brings their own style to it, which I think is so important to recognize within not just this style of music, but any kind of music um, across the South with country music, with folk music, with, I mean, there's so much cool stuff happening now with like country pop, not a lot of the modern stuff. I have a, 
I have hot takes on some modern country music, but I think in general, there are some really cool things that people are bringing their own histories and backgrounds to the art that they make in a very cool way. Yeah, absolutely. One question that I have for you all that's coming to mind is with this kind of style of music, it does contribute to a lot of stereotypes of the way that people view the South and view this region. I would be really interested to hear your thoughts in how the art that we make can both kind of reinforce stereotypes, but also holds the potential to break outside of them. And if you've seen that be done in any really exciting ways. Well, of course, we've seen a lot of both of that. But I feel like that kind of parallels what goes on in the music industry everywhere. Right. So, you know, Marcy and I are a couple. We've toured together for 40 years we don't stand on stage and say, hey, folks, we're lesbians, you know, which is one reason why a lot of women's music festivals didn't want to have us, because that's what they wanted people to do. They weren't interested in our interests of the history of women in country music or some of the other things that we were interested in. They wanted people who sang songs with the L word. We wanted to just highlight some great things that women have done in music. But in the meantime, Just the fact of us playing together and being out there and doing what we want to do sets its example. It opened doors for people. It gave people permission they didn't know they had. We spent years and years and years playing in elementary schools. Even being a couple wasn't relevant there. But what was relevant is that when else is an elementary school kid going to see a show with two women who play 15 instruments and sing? It makes the girls feel like I could do this. It makes the boys understand that a girl could do this. Um, again, that's not our purpose. It's kind of a, a bonus to what we're doing. So I think um, I agree with you. You're right. Those stereotypes are there. Uh, you know, Luckily, even some stereotypes change around, but as somebody who's been very involved for five years in trying to pull the extremely slow train of the International Bluegrass Music Association into the world of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, I'm going to say that we're pulling a real slow train and it's real heavy. And again, that's about a combination of stereotypes on multiple sides and people misunderstanding and not being willing to sit down one person to another and say, let's have a chat about this. You know, um, it's about people who hold up things from long ago who haven't even looked at the realities. It's about, you know, it's about so many things. And as activists and change makers, um, I think we want to be great role models and great examples and um, gracious and do the important work and hope that people come along for the ride. Do you feel the challenge that when you are making art that kind of exists outside of what we assume to be the popular stereotypical thing, i.e. kind of like the white man playing banjo, right? That you have to become an activist because you exist outside of um, kind of like the popular mode. We were just talking about this in a class of mine. I don't feel that you have to, it just happens to be natural, but our roles as activists fall into lots of different categories. I mean, it's not just music. I've been an activist and an advocate in the music industry for 
35 years. I've testified on Capitol Hill on behalf of the music industry. I testified before a um, panel of judges about um, streaming royalties before the Copyright Royalty Board. I do a lot of advocacy work with different organizations. I mentor artists at a local performing arts center, which is something I've been doing for 18 years. So advocacy isn't always political. It's sometimes political. Um, do you have to become an advocate and an activist? No, but we are activists anyway. And there is a great activist history in old time music. You know, I would say that Olabel Reed was an activist. I would say that Alice Gerard is an activist. I would say that Sarah Ogan Gunning was an activist. Anne Romaine, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who ran those Southern um, cultural tours with Bernice Johnson Reagan, they did something amazing. They took multiracial groups of musicians out into performances in the South for the purpose of letting everybody see that people are people. And so I feel like Marcy and I naturally, that's just something we want to do. We're also activists when it comes to cancer support. We're activists when it comes to healthcare. We're activists when it comes to a lot of different children's issues. It, that's just part of our DNA. But I don't feel that, you know, being a female playing the banjo forces me to be an activist. I am who I am. And if I can use that banjo as well as Pete Seeger to get people on board, I'm going to do it. It's closely related to diplomacy. Um, part of my personal agenda is that, you know, I want to encourage girls to play music, but notes don't have gender. And so I want both girls and boys to think that this doesn't have a gender. This, you express yourself. You can play however you want to. Um, but we've done a lot of international touring where um, and cultural diplomacy through the State Department. And it's a, in a way, it's a similar feeling as um, breaking ground or breaking some ice in this country where you just walk in and you are friendly and happy and you play and you treat everyone as total equals and they see that there's, there are no lines between us. Um, it's just so important, but it, it applies to everything. It applies to civil rights and gender, um, international diplomacy, cultural diplomacy. Um, one thing that I really appreciate about the South is the community organization that has had to grow up out of necessity around coal mines and coal mining. Um, and, the, and the smaller towns where people know that if they pull together, their town will do better than if they don't. Um, that's not an attitude that everybody shares when uh, when you're in bigger cities, when you're in larger areas. So uh, that really has a flavor in making the world better. It feels to me, especially in the rural South, there's this sense of community that even if we disagree, we all call this town home and therefore we can come together. It's still a challenge, um, but I do think you see art acting as a bridge in that. And it sounds like you both have had a lot of experience using art as a bridge, as have so many of these folk musicians throughout history, um, of bringing these communities together of saying, this is all our home and we should all want to make it better equally. 
Well, we've had some good mentors, one mm-hmm. of them being one of your North Carolina folks. Sycon is one of our very dearest friends. And he taught me a lot of what I know about organizing. I was on the board of his organization, Grassroots Leadership, for seven years. Marcy and I have produced multiple albums of size. We're the closest of friends. You know, we're as close as you can get without being officially related. And he's a very, gen- first of all, he's a brilliant strategist, a very good organizer, and an extremely generous person. And I would say that, you know, more than 50% of what I know about organizing comes from having worked with him. And he's also like an amazing songwriter and, you know, and a North Carolinian. It's the place to be, you know, I might be a little biased, but do you feel afraid in this current moment? Because there's so much in North Carolina and in the South right now that feels really at risk and really at stake. How do you navigate your own role as artist and as activist in that? Uh, I'm terrified, not just for North Carolina, but for the entire United States and the world. You know, I have to say it's hard. It's discouraging. And what I've come to um, sort of really come to believe, you know, there's that great song, step by step, the longest march will be won, will be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. I forget the very last line, but you get the point. The step-by-step part, and I think about um, I think about a, uh, an album that my friend Sally Rogers made 30 years ago called What Can One Little Person Do? Um, rather than get up and think I'm going to change the whole damn world, I get up and try and think about what's the thing that I can do today that's going to make somebody's day better? What, what am I going to offer in this workshop that I'm giving that is a real take-home piece so people can make their lives better? That's, you know, I think we have to do things in manageable bites and realize that if every single person got up and said, what can I do to help somebody else today? That's a lot of goodwill. And it goes a long way. Um, and then as Marcy talked about, and as you talked about, I, you know, we need to be in union about these things. We need to get together with other people. And, you know, sadly, we're in a stage in this country where I'm not even going to talk about it very much. You know, we have some past leadership and current leadership who are all about dividing and greed and us against them. It's, I'm going to be 70 years old uh, in August. I mean, I feel like the last time that we had a Congress that was actually willing to step towards the middle together for important issues was when Ted Kennedy was alive. And um, are we going to see it again? I have no clue. I really have no clue. But I don't believe that in the past we had people who are as blatant whack jobs as Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of these other people who just, you know, I, I, I just feel like we, how did they, how did they get into office? How did they gain power? 
And, you know, that's why when the elections come around, Marcy and I do things that we don't enjoy doing, phone banks. No, I don't want to call for three hours. But if Jamie Raskin, somebody I dearly love and think is waking up every day trying to make other people's lives better, calls me and says, will you please make phone calls? I'm going to make phone calls. So, you know, I think the bottom line is, and sometimes for us, you know, the make people's day better. I mean, we had an hour and a half long workshop today for an organization called Inspired Child, and we had 30 preschool teachers in Naptime University, and it was our job their kids are in nap time and they're on. I want to come to nap time university. <laughs> their, their kids are in nap time and we're giving a workshop on easy songs to facilitate their day and particularly trying to empower them to feel like even if they don't feel like they're musicians, they can make music with these kids. Well, you know, that's a good vibe for the day. To me, it feels like the most radical thing in a lot of ways right now is to actually believe that people are good, which is where we get the name good folk from, and that this country has the capability for change, which feels really hard to admit that I think we can do better. I don't know what that looks like, but I feel like the only way forward for me is to hold on to that belief. Totally, totally believe that. And I'm going to twist what you said and say, there are good people. You know, there are good people and good people are going to do good things. And hopefully it'll rub off on some of the people who need a little more help. There's good folks everywhere. That's our belief around here. Absolutely. (laughs) When you think about the work that you want to play, both with the workshops that you lead in your own role as artist, and I do want to talk about the documentary that you all are working on, what role do you see that being? You mentioned earlier that maybe kind of the advocacy isn't your sole purpose. So I'm interested in what do you think that purpose is? I don't know that advocacy is our sole purpose. It just seems to fit like a glove with everything else we do. Um, What do you think that looks like? Good question. (laughs) Okay, then I'll talk. (laughs) I mean, I, I feel like we... We work a lot of 10 hour days and a lot of it is behind the scenes organizing. Um, A lot of it for me is mentoring up and coming artists, helping them figure out how do you navigate this? How do you make a living doing this? And how do you make a living doing this and support things that you believe in? For instance, I'm working right now with a drummer, really fabulous young drummer, who's um, in addition to music, his passion is food, insecurity. And I've been working with him to try to figure out how he can use his music somehow to impact issues of food insecurity. What's the first thing we did together? We went to a food bank. We've been volunteering at a food bank and doing what people do. You know, some some truck drops off, you know, millions of pounds of groceries and then 15 people sort them into bags that other people are going to take home. And you see by virtue of having bent over these bags for three hours and sorted it, what people need, what they don't have. And we went from that to having conversations about what he could do 
and we're still working on that. There are some organizations. Um, there's an organization called Music to Life that is specifically helping artists merge their desire to do good with their musical passions. And I'm in the middle of a proposal now for um, hoping that we can add some workshops to Folk Alliance next year on other ways to use your music besides playing in coffee houses and concert halls and all of that. I mean, I think that's one of the things for us is we have this crazy diverse career where we play for kids, we play for seniors, we play in concert halls, we do workshops, we uh, do workshops for musicians, we do workshops for preschool teachers. We'll, we're right now, you know, and this is related to the documentary, we are on a very interesting, um, I hate the word journey, but I'm going to have to use it on this Answer. one moment mm. <laughs> of um, merging our music and our talents with the world of cancer support organizations and making, and I have to tell you that, that through this documentary, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in a second, every single day, a new contact gets in touch with me. How can we do something together to either raise money, raise awareness, um, support our organization? And it's pretty amazing. It's pretty fun. Um, so I feel like you know, that's, that's the job. And when we can mentor other people and how they can use their talent, their artistic talent and help something else out, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a purpose right there. I think that's the core really feeling like you're building something that's bigger than yourself. Um, there she is. When I was a little kid, my, look at her yeah, for a while. I think they could see me. And they have. Oh, you could fears. see her, right? Yeah. Okay. never mind. So don't uh, look at her. <laughs> well, when I was a little I'm happy to look at you both. <laughs> when I was a little kid, just feeling the power of unity in um, going on marches with my parents, civil rights marches, where everyone would march and sing. And we just did feel larger than ourselves, larger than our, our particular group, larger than our families. We felt like we were one huge group. And I love that. So when we're when we're working with an audience, we really want to feel like we're all on the same page, even if we have to kind of open the door to a page that we're on to let people see it. They can they can be on that page or not. But but um, doing works with cancer organizations, um, like we said before, touring, international touring, they all have a focus of of pulling people together and showing our common side. I started out trying to be a songwriter for a while and, and uh, it just didn't work out for me. I mean, I, I love to write songs, but the songs I'm most interested in are really songs that bring people together. Um, I can do that some, I'm more of an instrumentalist, but Kathy is, is brilliant at coming up with songs that are immediately singable, understandable, breaking down barriers. Uh, it's something I really respect. She's a her. great songwriter. She just isn't, She's not a prolific songwriter. She's a prolific instrumentalist. And when Marcy writes a song, it's a piece of brilliance. And there's several pieces of her brilliance in the documentary. 
Well, that's a great transition to talk about that, um, which of course we have to get to. Both my mother and my stepmom are breast cancer survivors, so it's something that is very important to me. I grew up kind of for the first 10 years of my life very much in that world. So I want to thank you first for all the work you're doing, which is amazing. And then for anyone who's not familiar with it, because we've talked a little bit offline about it, could you tell us about the project and the documentary and what that has looked like and what it is? Sure. Um, you know, Marcy went through a very intense breast cancer treatment that over the course of time took about five years start to finish. She's a graduate now, and as you can see, spoiler alert, here she is. And she, throughout the whole thing, had um, an enormously good sense of humor and goodwill. And she was quite an amazing patient. I mean, this is somebody who never, ever, ever complained. Um, but throughout it, she was also creating these really interesting pieces of art on her iPad. She'd sit there in the chemo chair and make a piece of art or whatever, or a cartoon. And she was posting that stuff on Facebook. And it was really um, bringing a lot of people to that experience. And she sort of developed a whole following of people who were just, you know, connecting through that. And so many things that she said and did were so brilliant that along the line, maybe her fourth year or something, I said, you know, this is a theater piece. This is a one woman show. We need to write this show and we need to do something with it. And um, so we also brought into the picture a dear friend of ours, Andy Offit Irwin, who is a phenomenal storyteller and comedian. Andy's one of our very close friends. This was an experience that we shared with him. He came in, we did multiple writing sessions around the seeds that Marcy had started. And then we did a bunch of readings. In fact, Cy Khan hosted the first two readings at his place in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we did a couple of readings in Lansing, North Carolina, up in Toronto, a few other places. And, um, and we got into a fringe theater festival. And by the way, I should mention that this documentary is called All Wigged Out. You can go to kathymarcy.com slash out and watch the trailer and read about it and find out about the release and all of that. So um, basically, uh, we were set to do Capital Fringe Festival here in Washington. And then the pandemic came along. And, you know, in the beginning, nobody thought the pandemic was going to be more than a couple of weeks. But what do you know? It became a couple of years. And someplace along the line, I realized, you know, by the time theaters will consider this, after they do their pandemic backlog and the other things they'd promised, we're going to be on to other projects. Let's figure something else out. At which point I said, I think we need to film this. And we can reach more people and et cetera. Now we call it a documentary because it's a true story, but it's not the kind of documentary where you're, you know, documenting how people were mistreated at a factory or documenting, you know, it's a, it's a musical comedy theater piece. When we got together with HMS Productions, who are an Emmy award winning company in Chicago that have filmed tons of Broadway shows they uh, they did us the good turn of introducing us to a fabulous director, Tracy Walsh. And Marcy and Tracy and I worked for a couple of months on Zoom, uh, us from North Carolina and, and Tracy from Chicago. We rewrote the whole thing. It stopped being a one-woman show. It started being a show with a 
four-piece band being Marcy Cathy, Stacy McMichael on bass, fabulous, fabulous bass player, and a woman named Janet Kramer on drums. And it stopped being a one-woman show, and I play some of the characters that Marcy previously was playing on her own. But we also play ourselves. We play ourselves as a couple. We play ourselves as uh, me as her advocate. And Marcy is uh, nothing less than brilliant and hilarious, but honest in this uh, piece. And what we found is uh, we've been screening at film festivals. We've gotten about 25 awards from film festivals. And we've been um, doing performances around the country. We were at the North Carolina Museum of Art. And in each, with each performance, the film's 58 minutes long. So we follow an appearance with a Q&A discussion and then some live music. And the Q&A discussion is usually the two of us, a moderator, plus someone from a hospital, a cancer support community, some organization that will also benefit by bringing people together to talk about this. And it's usually someone, there's usually someone there who talks about free services that are available to cancer patients and caregivers, which as cancer patients and caregivers, we don't hear about. You know, they're, they're at the hospital, they're busy saving your life and you're trying to figure out how to live your life. And that's <laughs> not really what they do. So I'm, I'm really thrilled with that. And that's, it's a form of activism. Yeah. And I mean, by good example, um, on April 27th here in Maryland, we're doing the, the first theatrical premiere in Maryland. Now we could have, um, we could have gone into the DC Film Festival, DC Independent Film Festival. But we chose to do our premiere with Hope Connections for Cancer Support because we're going to get some media for, I mean, we we're kind of known in the area and we've got a couple of Grammys and we've won a lot of awards for the film. We're going to get some media. And our goal with the premiere is to generate uh, um, $10,000 for Hope Connections for Cancer Support, whose, whose motto is no one should go through cancer alone and who doesn't charge for their services. And so uh, at this point, let's see, April 27th is about three weeks away and we've helped them raise about $5,000 already through sponsorships, but we're hoping to have a couple hundred people at the event. And I believe that even people who buy their $25 tickets are going to drop off a check at the front desk after they see this. And we have a host film panel Q&A, which is going to include Marcy's surgeon, i.e. Marcy's lifesaver. And, uh, and we'll play a couple of songs. And so that's one of those ways where we can merge our talents with what they you know, with another organization and everybody wins. I always describe the best type of art as this kind of act of mutual reciprocity, which is really dependent on community and that it's something that you're doing, but it's bringing all of these people together. And it goes back to what you all were saying earlier, which is that really good art goes beyond yourself. It's kind of this project in purpose, (laughs) community is mutual reciprocity. That's like our tagline here for good folk is how are we using art to build that community, but doing it in a way that my personal belief is, I think you do owe something to here. We talk a lot about the places that raised you, but I think in y'all's case, it also is about the people who've raised you and uplifted you and who've brought you to where you are now, Um, whether that's a life saving surgeon or it's someone who's just really inspired you. And then I think, again, it's 
recognizing those people who did that for you, but also passing it on to other people. And it's amazing to hear how y'all have done that in your work. And it's, it's very, very inspiring. Um, I also want to say one thing I love is that you keep the joy in this film. And so often when you see stories of any kind of traumatic event in life, especially with healthcare events, it is so focused on the hardship and not on the joy in the community that can often be built out of it. And I think y'all have done an incredible job keeping that community piece and trying to showcase that in a way that, you know, this is a hard thing to go through, but look at all these new people and organizations it's brought us into contact with, which I think is just amazing. Thank you. We, we didn't want to make a film that was going to bum people out. And in fact, when we screened it at the uh, New Haven, Connecticut Documentary Festival, we did a Q&A afterwards and there were a couple women in the back row and they said, you know, we're cancer survivors and we didn't really know if we wanted to see this film and we are so glad we came. And, you know, there's a lot of information for caregivers. There's a lot of information for the advocate. There's a lot of information for patients. We're hoping that doctors will watch this. We actually, in the fall, the American Nurses Association rented the film during Breast Cancer Awareness Month and made it available to their whole membership and did two online Q&As with us because they felt like, especially now, you know, I'm, I'm loosely using the term post-pandemic because we believe the pandemic is still going on. But especially now, I mean, um, nurses have to work twice as hard. They're they lost a lot of nurses during the pandemic to illness, to burnout, to whatever it may have been. And they're working really hard. And this is, you know, I have to say that we know some amazing nurses. I mean, almost every nurse we have ever met just comes in with a smile on their face and wants to do something that makes it easier for you to do whatever you need to be there for. And uh, so it was a real honor that the American Nurses Association felt like our film was valuable to their population. I could just talk to you both all day about this, um, but I know I promised you only an hour. So before we get into our final question, which I will tell you about in just a minute, one thing I would love is when you think about the future and what you want that to look like, what does that look like for you all? Both in regards to kind of your work and your art, but also the world that we would like to maybe be in one day. I think we need wisdom in the media. We need to, I, I hope that there's still a world where um, children won't be bombarded with uh, craziness um, that they don't need to experience. They're, they're being raised to respect each other and then they see adults really mess that up. Um, but I'm concerned in having faith in other people and faith in our government um, I really hope the whole, all the, all the crazy stuff that's going on right now just settles down and people put children and other people on their priority list other than just themselves. And I know there are a lot of people who do that, but there are just enough people who don't that really mess things up for the rest of us. Yeah, I feel like, um, we are always in process of thinking about what we want to do and how we want to do it. It's always going to involve music. It's always going to involve activism and it's always going to involve those opportunities where we can merge them. And, um, you know, right now I think this is, there's about five different primary paths that we're on in terms of music and activism 
the film being one of them and uh, others will pop up and we're willing to kind of grow with them, see what we can learn. We do, we also do, you know, we do a lot of teaching between us. We've got 20 different online, maybe 50 different online courses. I misspoke there between Peghead Nation and True Fire and uh, Homespun Tapes. And Marcy has a new app that she created teaching ukulele. We run, we're going into the 15th year of our ukulele festival here in Maryland at the Music Center at Strathmore. And we're bringing back some of the people who came to the very first one. And a uke fest, that's a joy fest. You know, that's a total joy fest. And um, we we do a lot of that. And so, you know, I feel like the future continues to be a curated version of more of the same. How's that? <laughs> I hope that everybody has the experience of going to a traditional music festival. And one of the things I love most about it is walking around the parking lot and you see bumper stickers from everywhere and you see um, bumper stickers from every persuasion, every belief system. Um, and you know that all those cars are empty and all the people are in the center at the jam. It's, it's just so important to, to remember that um, the things that connect us are so strong that we can't let the little things get in the way. Absolutely. And I, I, um, I feel like, you know, shows like this are, are great. They're kind of, they're great conversations to have that, that plant seeds. Um, I want the, one seed I want to plant for the listeners is um, one way or another, find ways to support your local musicians, either come to their shows or their online things, buy their merch. It helps them. You know, if you don't need a CD and you're listening to their music on Spotify, then send them the cost of the CD. Do what you can to help keep the music alive. It's tough on up and coming younger musicians. And, um, you know, I would be not doing my job as a folk singer if I didn't do my own shameless self-promotion. So I'm just going to say that uh, most of our 52 albums are available at kathymarcy.com. We also have a Bandcamp site that has lots of downloads, including the pre-order for All Wigged Out on both... Um, the music songs from the songs from the show and the DVD itself. And if you go there, you'll find the Amazon link for where you can pre-order the DVD. And if anybody's out there working for an organization that wants to screen all wigged out and do a Q and a and have one of these great events, then please contact us through the website. I just want to back all of that. As a folklorist, I have to also say, please go to folk festivals. <laughs> They're what keep me employed. They're what keep y'all employed. And buy tickets, you know, support your friends, go to their shows. But buy tickets is also so important because so many people, a show might get canceled um, if enough people don't buy it on time, even if you're planning to go. So I want to back all of that. And um, I was going to ask where we can find you. So that's perfect. We do have one final question, which is what we end all of our podcast with. And I'm going to leave it up to interpretation for how you would like to take it. But that question is, what do you believe in? Did you hear the silence? <laughs> it's, it stumps everybody. So <laughs> take a moment. I believe in trying. When, I, when my time is done, and I am not planning on being buried underground in a casket with a gravestone, but if I had one, 
here's what I have decided I would want it to say. You're either trying or you're not trying. And underneath it would say, she tried. <laughs> what do you believe in? <laughs> I believe in the power of music to build connections between family members and other people and groups of people. Um, and I believe in um, that there is goodness in all people. Um, and my, my hope is that all children feel that they're respected and listened to and heard as they're, as they're growing up. And then I'm not being very eloquent now, but, um, I do believe in the basic goodness of, of most of the people in the world, but it's music that can really save us, bring us together. It's music, art, and dance. That's how cultures are preserved. Um, and that expresses our individual humanity along with our group identities. It's what we study as folklorists, how we use these things we make, say, do, and believe to interpret our lives and, and prove that we existed, which I think is a nice summary of both of your answers in some ways. Kathy, Marcy, thank you so much for being here. It's such a joy and pleasure to talk to you both. Um, Please let me know when you're back in North Carolina. would love to try to meet up somewhere um, and do something. And, you know, we've heard now where everyone can find your work, but is there anything else you would like to add um, or anything upcoming that you would like to promote other than the film, which we will definitely link to? I'm very excited to watch it. Uh, well, speaking of, speaking of North Carolina, our upcoming things in North Carolina include the Olabel Reed Songwriting Retreat. I think it's the 21st to 23rd of April in West Jefferson, North Carolina through the Ar Ash County Arts Council. And then uh, first weekend of May, we are helping kick off the very first North Carolina Ukulele Festival through Burke Arts in Watauga County. And um, I'm, I'm excited to be part of those kinds of things. I definitely want to try to come to the ukulele festival. I'm with you. I think that just sounds like an amazing expression of joy. So, well, sign up soon because they might be close to soon. Okay. I will get those tickets and we will link to all of it. And thank you both so much for being here. Um, I'm just, again, it's so, so always a pleasure to talk to everyone on this podcast, but you both especially. And to anyone listening, have a good day, good night, wherever you are, be good, stay good. Mm -hmm.